Hello there. Welcome to another episode of the Oblivious Maximus podcast. Um, this is Aaron Osborne, your host. Um, this week, my guest is Graham Nixon. Graham runs Resist Records, which is a number of things, but is a record store, is a record label. They're, I guess, a booking agency or touring company or whatever you want to call it, um, based in Sydney. And, uh, yeah, I've known Graham for quite a while. I exist. My band is on Resist Records and Graham has released all our albums and been very involved and very much a part of our band and a part of, I guess, my personal journey through music in the last, I don't know, six or seven years. Um, Graham's obviously been, a integral part of the Australian hardcore landscape over the years with the releases he's done with the tours he's booked with the bands he looks after um and I thought it'd be interesting to have a chat to him about you know his relationship with music and how he got into it and how he started things up with Resist um I think a lot of people have talked to him in the past about the various other things he does things to do with Parkway Drive and uh, I was sort of more interested in hearing about him and uh, his interests and, you know, how he started through all this. But, um, yeah, and I think I got that out of him. I recorded this one in Resist, in the shop. So, apologies if there's any little funny background noises or audio difficulties, but I think from memory it sounds pretty good. Um, but, yeah. So, enjoy that. Um, Also, just before I get started, I just wanted to put in a little thing at the end of this. Um, I Exist played a bunch of shows with Frenzel Rom on the weekend, which were fucking amazing, and we always love the opportunity to play with Frenzel, and we appreciate it greatly. Um, However, unfortunately, at uh, the show we played on the Central Coast at the Entrance Leagues Club, sometime between our set finishing and Frenzel's set finishing, someone decided it would be a good idea to steal Josh from I Exist's uh, 1987 White Les Paul Custom, which is really annoying for us, as it is something we need to make music, but also it's a piece of Josh's gear, and it's really fucking shit that someone decided it would be a good idea to come into an area of the venue where they're not meant to be anyway, and steal something from a bunch of dudes that drove up to play, you know, we're just there to have fun, we're not making that much money, and when someone takes something like that from us, it's, uh enormous pain in the ass not only for us as a band but for us personally as well and uh this guitar was particularly precious to josh for a number of reasons but um it can be identified by the fact that it has a drawing on it by his daughter it's got lace pickups in it and it's in a brown hard case so if anyone on the central coast or sydney or newcastle or anywhere up there happens to see a white Les Paul Custom kicking around, or if you see someone playing it, and it has some of those features, uh, please let somebody know. Us, the police, we've reported as stolen. We would love to get it back if we can. I know that these things often don't just turn back up, 
But yeah, it's fucking shit. So I'd really like to get that back for Josh because it means a lot to him. But as, on top of that, I'd also like to thank everyone that shared it around on the internet over the weekend for us. It means a lot that people in the Australian sort of alternative music scene are helpful like that. And I think a lot of people understand the plight that, you know, one faces when something like that's stolen from them. So, yeah, I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone for sharing it around. All the bands that shared around, all the people that shared around, all the, you know, record labels, everyone who shared around for us. You're fucking awesome. Thanks for your help. Hopefully we get this stupid prick and we can have this guitar back. (sighs) Anyway, after all that, let's go and listen to Oblivious Maximus episode 13 with my mate Graham Nixon from Resist Records. Brutal! Okay, Graham Nixon, welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me in your shop. You're welcome. <laughs> to record my podcast. Um, Alright, so I asked, I start all of them off by asking how people primarily sort of first in their life discovered an interest for music. Where did that start for you? Jeez, I'd say probably early in like through skateboard videos i was never a surf in the surfing so i can't really claim surf videos <laughs> did that but skateboard videos i remember um in one of the powell videos there was a ray barbie was skating and it was a song to mcrad who i wouldn't have a clue who mcrad were but yeah. turns out that i loved the song and i said i was really into a lot of that sort of stuff. My brother at school had a lot of skate friends that had, um, you know, they had the Dead Kennedys logos and Bad Religion logos. I didn't have a clue what any of this stuff was. I was just sort of like, oh, they're cool. They're skate dudes. Yeah. I was in our mates sort of thing. So yeah. I guess through skating, like I was sort of just a, probably, you know, year seven at school and they were in year 10 and a bit older. So I, they were sort of the guys that I was hanging around and through that, I sort of just got to be exposed to more bands. I was sort of, I guess, listening to a lot of either hip hop or sort of, um, I, like from I guess 16, 15, 16, I was sort of listening to, you know, things like sort of Rage Against the Machine, Nirvana, and sort of all those sorts of, I wouldn't say grunge bands, but that a lot sort of, of era yeah, of alternative. 92, music. sort of, yeah, yeah. yeah. And where did bit, you where did you grow up? Mascot in okay. Sydney, yeah. yeah. So I was walking distance to the airport <laughs> which was a great good. area. Oh, yeah, which was <laughs> nice and loud all the time. But yeah. um I sort of had a lot of like I went to Mascot public school and then I went to Ramick Boys High basically because my brother he went to those school like the, yeah. I just followed him sort of thing. So yeah. but through yeah, through that I guess, um, like I said before, I was listening to those bands. I really liked, like Public Enemy is still probably one of my favourite bands, and they did a song with Anthrax in '91. Yeah, that sort know. of um, that was like I just I loved how quick it was. But before that, I never really had listened. I never really liked metal. Like I, I still don't like bands like your traditional metal. I've never sure. cared for Iron Maiden and things like that. I could yeah. honestly say I've probably never listened to. Yeah. Um, but Public Enemy Anthrax, that sort of, I was just like, whoa, the power 
in that song and how just how fast it was i was just like this is awesome so i sort of tried to find other things like with no internet and um little money like when you're 14 15 you got no money to yeah. buy music um it was sort of more a thing that you'd save up i used to go to central station records mm-hmm. and buy a lot of hip-hop stuff from there um and then through that i guess yeah nirvana and nirvana when Nevermind came out i remember my brother brought home a cassette of that and there were songs on that that i was just like whoa how fast are these songs this is great <laughs> and then that just sort of yeah from there i sort of you know i stumbled across a I went to a, um, I think I was like 14 or 15 and Baby Animals played and Night of Chris supported and I went, my brother wanted to go so I was just like, yeah, I'll go with you sort of thing and then I, I just, I saw Night of Chris and I was like, how cool is this? These chicks yeah. are playing, you know, this like heavy music so then uh, later on I ended up going and seeing um, seeing them and Toe to Toe supported them and I was just blown away like I was yeah. just like holy shit what's this music yeah so that's when so I was, was it was all sort of just a snowball effect from yeah pretty much hearing from, those things yeah and like, a like, drive from yourself more than yeah I just had friends a lot like I, I, I guess growing up I was um, after my brother nearly killed himself skating so mum and dad were sort of like you gotta sort of stop this skateboarding stuff and yeah, right. I, I did it for a little while after he had a bad accident and fractured his skull and whatever else and Jesus. then um after that i got into golf of all things because we sort of all my aunties and uncles and whatever played golf dad played golf and uh, we had a massive schoolyard next to our house that we'd just go and bash balls in the park yeah. and then um through that i ended up coming be like met some people that were into i guess sort of of all things, some punk rock stuff. So that's such a weird, yeah, weird, weird way to get it. But that punk. was like some friends there would again. I was sort of like, you know, like I remember sort of, um, you know, like sort of going and just hanging out, and they he would sort of be playing all sorts of music, you know, Pennywise and Rants and things like that. And yeah. this is all probably early nineties, and like it just yeah, again, sort of just like it was just exp- like being exposed to it. So. Yeah, cool. So when when was like when did it uh, like was toe to toe the thing that first brought in like the more hardcore side of things? For yeah, you before then? that it was either um, like Night of Chris were probably the closest thing to a punk band that I had seen. Yeah. Um, before that, like I I'd had no real um, like I was never exposed to it, other than like the sort of stuff on skate videos. Like mm-hmm. I sort of had known of bands like your dead kennedys and bad religions and all that sort of stuff but never nothing on a local front by no like it was sort of um it was more of a grunge or indie rock sort of bands like the clouds and um you know night of chris and whatever else and then i'd start like i saw toe to toe it was at the vulcan hotel and that with the venue itself was probably like i think i was 16 yeah and the venue itself was from memory as big as a lounge room like it was tiny and i'd never been like i'd never really you know like when you go to i guess concerts it's a big difference between going to a show where you sort of see the guy selling merch the guy in the band selling merch and things like that like it's a whole different world yeah yeah. and um then yeah i remember seeing them and they just blew me away like i think they were opening so it would have been one of their earlier shows as well yeah and um just everything about it i was like this is bizarre. Like it just blew me away. So like as soon as they start, once they play, like I sort of would follow what they were doing, and then that just exposes you to more and more and more and more and more. 
yeah. sort of stuff. So, and so when when did your like personal uh, like your interest go from being just liking the music to wanting to be involved with it? Oh, it was all. Um, I wouldn't say I stumbled across it, but yeah, it was like uh, through toe-to-toe, sort of, or through being exposed to hardcore music through toe-to-toe, mm. and then through just wanting to know more and more about it, I got into a lot of bands, like a lot of the, I guess, US straight edge bands, the Gorilla Biscuits and Chain of Strengths and all that whole Revelation catalogue I was just obsessed with. Yeah. Um, and then through that, I like just would do so much research and wanted to know more band you couldn't really buy that stuff here yeah, so yeah. it was sort of i was getting tapes luke dolan from arms reach and whatever would he'd just give you tapes and things like that like people would just you, if you ask them they would do whatever they can to like just Help share this because yeah, yeah, yeah it was sort of like a you know the, a big show back then was like 80 people and everyone knew everyone and yeah. whatever else so it was sort of a thing where you would just sort of You'd find there was again there was no internet to just go and hop on and yeah, be like I'm see every going, single yeah, thing ever. I'm gonna go and download the latest whatever. It was sort of like well you'd ask your mate to tape something and um, just over time I sort of become friends with Scott who had started Resist and then um, I had a myself had a bit of an I wouldn't say an accident but I had a a health issue that stopped me from playing golf and yeah. um, through that I sort of I was probably early 20s at 21 i had a, a hip operation that basically meant i couldn't really play golf at the level i was playing at and um i was i wouldn't say i was out of work but i was sort of out of like a career i wouldn't say a career but i was i just couldn't like from 16 onwards i was always going to be a professional golfer like i yeah. said i did everything i could to do that and i was at 16 i was working nearly full-time at a golf course like Jesus, in, in a golf yeah. shop so and so by the time that that the operation happened were you playing like i couldn't professionally no or no, no i couldn't I, I sort of my so my i had a, a, a cancerous tumor growing in my hip that yeah. couldn't allow me to really like i was in pain every day I'd, I'd if i was to play golf i'd probably last three or four holes and then start Jesus. limping the whole like i just couldn't get around so the doctor yeah it wasn't so great so <laughs> The doctor was sort of like, okay, well, the only way to get rid of this is to do this operation, and um, and I was sort of like, yeah, cool, whatever. Like, I, and I wasn't, I wasn't um, as much as I was in pain. It was, it felt like a muscle pain. It wasn't a pain that was like, oh, I'm going to die of this yeah. thing that's oh, growing that's inside you. So it was, um, it was all pretty. Like it was mum and dad, who obviously and my brother were pretty concerned about it all. But I was, I was never that concerned. I remember I had to do, a, had to sign a waiver to say that. If um, through the operation I become a quadriplegic or a paraplegic, it was that close to the spine <laughs> that the um, and I and I, I just wanted I was sort of like I just want to get, just this, want to get the pain yeah, out of yeah yeah get the pain <laughs> like I knew that what was causing the pain I was just like I just want to get it out yeah that's the risk you take I'm pretty confident that you're a doctor it's not Hopefully as though you're not gonna yeah you're not up. gonna yeah you're not gonna <laughs> you know like if it's sort of I don't know I never really had a, a thought that they were gonna stuff the operation up. So they did that. That was 21. I was only 21 when that happened. And then um, I could barely... I remember to get out of hospital, the the pass test, I had to walk about five metres and it took, probably took me about 20 minutes to walk five metres. It was that sort of knocked you yeah. around that much. So um, so to get to re, get rehabilitated and whatever else, I was probably off my feet for a long, long time. And, um, and well before that, I had sort of already had 
given up the idea of doing the golf thing just because I couldn't. It's um, hurting so much. Yeah, I just like yeah from from nineteen to twenty and whatever. I was going to physio probably once every month and was going to um, you know like which isn't great when you if you're trying to be a full time golfer. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> doing any physio at that age isn't yeah. sort of something that you really want to do. Not a good so, sign at the start. No, no. So I sort of gave up a bit on that and sort of was like I was still working there just to sort of make ends meet and. Um, I was still living at home, so I wasn't. I didn't have many costs. Like I didn't. It's not as though I had to find work to get by. I was sort of like getting by comfortably because I was living at home. Probably wasn't even paying board or rent. Yeah. Um. So I didn't really have to. There's no pressure on me to go and find work. Sure. That was an alternative. But at the same time, toe to toe, were touring a lot and sort of, um, I guess through me being available. Like Scott was sort of like, oh, if you can, you know, if you want to help out here, you, you know, that's a an in sort of thing, and mm-hmm. then it just sort of yeah took took over from there. And wh- where was the shop at that point? Was it there? That was the four eighteen King Street address. Yeah, yeah, that was the original original yeah. space. So. And so, what what was the? I don't know if you've talked about it before. But what was like the process of it rolling over from being you working in Scott's shop to it sort of changing to being your thing? Oh, it was more. Um, he got just got busy with Toe to Toe and then he was away a lot. Um, and then I guess the turning point was his partner got pregnant mm-hmm. and um, it just was sort of like not really a thing that um, like he he probably, I wouldn't say he had to go and get a real job, but it was like the money coming in wasn't, wasn't going to support no, a family. No. Yeah. And, um, and that's sort of where, yeah, so he sort of was like, I've got to go and do this other stuff and yeah. support my kids and things and that's yeah so that was it yeah and so when <clears throat> when it changed hands then to you taking it over was that did you like see changes needing to be made or did you no. work it into being something more of your own or no it was always like when Scott and I was doing it it was always like we had the label going we'd done a lot of releases up until that point um there was nothing there was no major change happened um once i sort of did it myself it was more it was a lot probably easier to make a decision because you didn't have to go back and forth sure. but it was um there was no major changes that were like um you know upon that sort of change over there was nothing that was significant that yeah did was for better or worse yeah sure so it has like i guess does a resist now as a multifaceted sort of beast. It's not just a shop, but like, uh. um, what, so I guess going from the shop first, um, has the shop been something that's like, obviously it's grown considerably mm. since the start, but is the, is the shop something that's still like, you know, has that always been important to you to uphold the fact that there's a place that's like this for people to come yeah, to? Yeah, it's the shop's the the main attraction, I guess. Like, what it's a, a I wouldn't say it's a meeting point, but it's an easy meeting point for a lot of people that come to Sydney, whether they come to from just out of town, yeah, or like I guess too, like a lot of bands travel. A lot of people used to travel a lot back then. Like you know, people would come from Canberra just for a show yeah, that was yeah, at the sure. Sando or something like that. Whereas yeah. that sort of lost a bit now because bands tour so often and go to regional areas so often. Yeah. But the shops that are still a lot of the other stuff just come through. I wouldn't say necessity, but it just come out of. I remember back before we did the Grade Tour, which was the first international tour we did. Mm-hmm. Um, 
victory records hit us up about you know deal like back then you would deal with a lot of the labels direct. There's no that real distribution. Yeah. So it was sort of, um, so you, it was pretty personal, I guess. Like you would deal with the label direct, get your records sent out. Um, and then through that, and also through Scott's contacts and just people knowing toe to toe, a lot of the labels would just ask you to tour bands. And yeah, right. we sort of just, um, it was never a thing that, like we, we knew what we were sort of, how to do it. And through, um, our friends at Blue Murder, they basically helped me along the way as far as telling me what to do and how to process this. And like, I knew how to book a local tour. I'd never touched an international tour. Sure. Um, so it was sort of, it was a learn as you go process. And yeah. that's basically how the label was the same. And yeah, that, you know, everything else we do is yeah. through necessity and as you go. <laughs> so what, how, how, like, how do you see the way like things are faring for record stores at the moment? Like I know there's been a lot of talk recently after that, um, you know, after the whole record store day thing this year, how there was so much talk about like, you know, uh, record store day and stuff is like killing aspects of the record mm. industry because so many people are want records and it's putting all these factories under pressure. And no, well, I guess the, 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 biggest problem with the record store day stuff where i guess a lot of people have a problem is where you've got these reissue reissues of records that are i wouldn't say irrelevant but does anyone like a lot of the stock that we we had a a um a bunch of seven inches that didn't need to happen like one song each split seven inches that were put together through labels just for, just for the sake, the sake of, of selling selling seven inches yeah and um i guess all those additional pressings is what clogs the system up for a label that's still trying to press records, who presses records 360 days of the year. For sure, yeah. And then all of a sudden, at this one point, and now with um, Black Friday, that's also becoming a problem. But Mm -hmm. you have this, um, I guess, just backlog of titles that can't get pressed because, you know, some major labels running these irrelevant releases yeah. that they sell off at record store day that unfortunately you buy because in case you need them. Yeah, that's the only time they, they happen they, or whatever. Yeah, and um, so that's where I feel as though a lot of people... Like, record store day itself by far is our busiest day of the year. Yeah, sure. Um, it's, I imagine, most indie stores, it's their busiest day. So it's sort of... It's a good way to get people to acknowledge that there's still record stores out there, but I don't know if... Um, I don't know if the years to come will get better or worse for that. Yeah. Like it's, you know, who knows what sort of, what will happen. The biggest problem I think with Record Store Day is that um, it's never, a, we didn't get a lot of the stock that, like we ordered stock and you, the process is you get the lists about in January and you order your stock and you basically hope that you get half of what you order. Yeah, right. And right. Um, by the time you get your invoices, a lot of the stuff I remember there was probably about 20 titles we didn't get this year that were all key titles for what we do yeah and um, that's just through the labels not pressing enough to cover the world like they might be great that America's sorted but um, they haven't covered the outreaching places yeah so Europe and sort of and it also too I'm sure it comes down to how much you spend and I'm sure there's a lot of factors as to how you get allocated your stock but um, that's the only annoyance with Record Store Day where people come in and the other thing too is that a lot of online stores now are doing their own exclusive presses yeah. 
which totally defeats the whole well, point not, of it. It's record store day. Yes, yes. It's online it's record on, store yeah, it's day. It's not online selling day. But, yeah. Um, so that's a sort of, that's. I think that'll get worse mm-hmm. as time goes on rather than better. And I don't know if that's sort of going to be something that, um, you know, like it might be people might be like, oh, well, you know, at the end of the day, a, a guy just wants to buy his record. Doesn't matter. He probably doesn't care where he buys it from. Sure. Well, the other thing too is that we get a lot of people call up at two and three in the afternoon like oh do you have this record and so like well the whole idea of you is to come in not and you look to, yes yeah. not to sit at home ring in other stores yeah so that's sort of like that's just dealing with customers yeah that's, yeah part of owning a shop i'm yes. sure yes um you know because i mean i i when i first i mean when i first heard about it and like like I exist, obviously did a record for it, and like I, th- I thought like, oh, this is a cool thing in the sense that like, this gives people a reason to want to go to the shop for this thing. Mm. I didn't think like, I didn't want to do it to for the idea of like, oh, we're gonna fucking sell these yeah. records. It was like, oh, because it'll be cool because now we're a part of this thing, yeah. and if people go into the shops, then that's where they're gonna find that record. Yeah, and um, but I mean, it does seem like. It does seem pretty crazy that, like, I mean, you know, like, U2 records getting re-released, yeah. like, for the day and then just, like, smashing all these shops with yeah. that's not being able to get things. Yeah, that's what it's, um, like, whether, for better or worse, a lot of that stuff, like, I'm sure there's a shop out there that is so excited that U2 got repressed, <laughs> but for us that um, we don't even order that stuff, yeah, like, it's you know that sort of not that it um like the whole the whole day of it because we import the majority of our stock mm-hmm. um and even if you didn't import your local supplier would still be bringing it in so someone's like the the stress of having stock on time is so ridiculous yeah, yeah. because a lot of your stock leaves the monday before the friday two years back there was a public holiday on the friday so it was a short week and yeah you know, needless to say, a lot of stores probably didn't get their stock in time. Yeah. And um, because the pressing plant's being so backlogged, it's not as though people have their records sitting in a warehouse a month in advance. It's yeah. like literally coming in and shipping out straight away. Yeah, right. So there's a lot of little factors. I think over time it'll only get better, mm-hmm. but it's a logistical stress. Yeah. <laughs> the whole, the and whole at, thing. And at the moment, it. it's seemingly a lot of different places are also stressing about it too. Yeah. So that's probably applying more yeah. stress to it as so well. So I think, I think it's it's getting away from the initial idea of having exclusive records for indie stores to sell to get people into the store. Yeah. I think it's now becoming totally away from what it's set out to be and it's a bit, you know, I think it'll only get worse before it gets better. So. Yeah. So there's probably, there's probably a couple of years of shit before yeah, it turns well, good again. And nowadays with Black Friday, which is the Thanksgiving holiday in America, yeah, um, that's something that we, I wouldn't say we're forced to participate in, but if people want to buy stock, like we carry those titles and yeah. we can order those titles. Um, and I think more and more labels, because... There's labels that know that they can repress certain titles to ship a lot of copies, whereas if they repress them at any other time of the year, they probably wouldn't sell through sure. them. Yeah. So it's sort of whether it's you, using the day yeah. more than using the yeah the point of doing it. Yeah. So it's sort of um, so that's a bit frustrating. Like I said, I think the there's a few opportunistic people out there that take advantage of it. And yeah. 
for good or better or worse. Yeah, that I mean that whole that stuff always has always seemed a little bit ridiculous to me in the sense that as well like like I remember seeing last year and I was saying it when I went and saw Friends in America at the end of last year that like Harvey Norman were doing a Black Friday sale. Yeah, like, we don't celebrate Thanksgiving no, in this no. country. Why are we doing yes. Black Friday sales? And, that, and that's how I think that'll just. You know, away from a record store and a Black Friday sale, I think that over time will just become a norm. Yeah, we still won't have Thanksgiving. But you can <laughs> yeah. go and buy a, yeah. you know, on Black Half Friday. You can go and buy. Yes. You can go and get yourself a bargain. So yeah. that's where, um, yeah, I, don't, I think your hands have been sort of forced into. Yeah, it. like, and if customers like, it's I would say with this year's Black Friday, like places that are you know people that are your major chain stores they're nearly forced to have sales because people nearly expect them. Yeah. And I know for us, if we were to not buy certain stock or not promote it or not, you know, get involved with it, more more often, more customers than not would probably ask for those releases. Yeah, so sure. if you don't have them... You're not holding up your end yeah, of the yeah. store's and it's not, There's no re- Like, it'd be a, a protest to not have them. Like, it wouldn't be... Like, I've got access to order them. Yeah. Um, again, what we get allocated to what we order are two different things. But if I was to not get involved with it, in a way, it's probably my loss as opposed to, you know, sort of someone yeah. coming out of it okay. So... Mm. Yeah, right. Um, so, okay. Where... Where for you, um, like, where did the label sort of start becoming a big, you know, part of your day-to-day and a big part of your life? Oh, well, the the label, sort of, the initial idea with the label was we had a lot of bands playing in the shop, Mm -hmm. and um, at the time there was just no labels. There was um, a few labels around shock, had a lot of... um, I guess smaller labels, yeah, little like side arm spent things, records, yeah. and um, there's a lot of a lot of labels, a lot of local labels at the time that none really had distribution, none really like a, a Sydney band would do a record on a Sydney label, but not sell it to Melbourne or Adelaide or Queensland, right, okay. and then vice versa. Melbourne bands were doing that, and we sort of we try to just be like, well, let's start a label, but try to do a national thing as opposed to just a local thing. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't as though we sort of set out to take on the world or anything like that with it. It was just sort of like a, let's just do things a bit different, more so base it off the labels at the time, like Epitaph and, um, you know, what Revelation and sort of at the point, you know, what Victory and things like that were doing. Yeah. Um, and try to have it a bit more serious or a bit more sort of um, full time. Like we had the time to do it because we're sitting in a store doing not much all day. So yeah. um, we had the time to do it. And we sort of, through seeing all these bands come and do the in-stores, none of them were on labels. None of them had yeah. any distribution. None of them had sort of any real means to put something out. Mm-hmm. So FMD sort of played and... You know, Scott and I were sort of like, yeah, let's just hit them up to see if they want to do a 7-inch. We did it. It sold, I want to say it maybe sold out of its 500 pressing It's within six months. And it did it quite easily. Like, there was a lot of demand for it interstate as well. There was, like, the stores that we were selling it to, they were selling them. Um, the band was selling them on the road. And we were sort of like, oh, this was, yeah, let's, do, an, yeah, yeah. let's do another release. And we did... Sure. Um, the LA band Where's the Pope um, and then we did Vicious Circle and then from there it was just a thing where each time a band you know and after you do about five or six things you sort of start 
getting a bit easier to do and yeah 130 odd releases later it <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess from that point as well people would have started hitting you up too yeah, after yeah, then it wasn't yeah. just you guys and I guess too we, like the fact Scott was involved with it made it a lot easier to you know had he not been involved we would never have done a thing like Where's the Pope or Vicious Circle because they would have been like who's this guy I don't know him but sure. we you know they Scott had known all those guys for a long long time so that made it easy to get people on board and to know and through here like he like Toe to Toe had done a lot of their own seven inches and a lot of like they were involved with a lot of their early records yeah um so we were lucky that we knew how to you know we knew who to contact to manufacture things we knew who to what stores were there we knew sort of Mm -hmm. um the basics of running a label so it was more a thing that and we didn't really have like we didn't expect to do what we ended up doing but um it was just one of those things where at the time too it wasn't a thing you might only sell 500 CDs or 500 um, 7 inches. And it wasn't probably until, um, whether it be a Prom Queen or a Relevant, I want to say maybe the Irrelevant CD um, sold through its 500 pressing really quick and we pressed more. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, I know the, one of the Prom Queens, sort of that sort of got off to a pretty good start and then we would a Parkway which sort of, Again, like Motorcell a thousand early on, and then you'd be like, "Whoa, that's sort of crazy." Let's do yeah, another yeah. five hundred, and then you sell sure. those, and and then after that, we started doing some stuff, um, bands like After the Fall and Kill Choir Project, and a few other things that weren't necessarily a hardcore band, or you know, from those sort of roots. And we ended up through After the Fall, we ended up getting distribution with MGM. Um, and that was so we did 24 releases before we had a distributor yeah, wow. um, prior to that it was just us selling direct to stores and then sure. it got to a point where um, it was sort of like oh this makes sense to try to go through distribution so we went to MGM they were happy to do it and then from MGM we went to Stomp and then Stomp to Shock and Shock onto now Cooking Vinyl so yeah it's been a big a big run for you mate yes yes <laughs> so when did when did things for the label as far as you see when when was like the change happened from it being a hardcore you know a, sh- a record store that was primarily for punk and hardcore mm. releases when did the label then start becoming like the label became its own thing because i would argue that now a lot of people would associate resist more with being a record label than oh, totally, than yeah. they would a shop. Yeah, and um, a lot of people even come in here talking about the titles that we do, yeah. and they're probably oblivious that we put them out. Yeah, sure. Which is sort of strange, but I think through Prom Queen, the first Prom Queen um, album, that sort of obviously sold more than what we were doing at the other releases, okay. and then um, Parkway sort of after that. Like, I want to say Prom Queen was still an early 20 title, and the first Parkway was 33. Uh-huh. Um, so it wasn't until that, that was a few years well into it, that th- we were doing more than the 500 and 1,000 yeah. sort of numbers. Um, and then it sort of, I guess, the first, I remember when Killing With A Smile came out, that charted at number 38 or something like that, and um, that was sort of like, oh, cool, well... That's great. Happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, I guess the more you, the I wouldn't say the better you get at it, but the more that sort of stuff happens. And if you chart at thirty eight, you want to chart 
at you know, the next one you want to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the thing with, with Parkway as well, they were sort of, um, at that time they were doing a lot of things that not many bands were doing as far as selling out shows. The Killing the Smile Tour, I want to say, sold out every show. Yeah. Um, and then it was just a thing where that, it just snowballed and snowballed. They sold out the Annandale, so we're like, next tour we'll do... The Menning Bar and sold out the Menning Bar instead of like next two we'll do whatever and it was just one of those things where it's sort of you know X amount of years later they're doing the Horden and they've sold out the Horden a few times now and um, it's just yeah it just keeps going and going so it's true it's snowballed more so than um, than something that we set out to have happen I guess yeah so is uh like has, has has anything in terms of running the label then changed for you now in how you decide what you're going to put out or you no, the that, things you put into it you know no the, the the there's no decision to put out any bands like a lot of it's um it comes down to hearing i guess through the touring that we do we're exposed to a lot of bands on a local level through that because there's always you got to put a bill together so you need bands to yeah to play the fill, shows. The, fill the shows yeah. and that we are forever exposed to a lot of bands, um, a lot of local bands through that sort of channel, I guess. And there's always, like I think with I Exist, there was, um, I can't remember what tour it would have been, but I remember hearing some songs and I was like, this is really good. Like, what are these guys doing? Sure. And then it's sort of like, you know, like I think at the time you were looking to do something and that's where, you, so it's like every nearly every band has its own little um you know there's i wouldn't say there's a story to everything you sign but there's it generally comes down to either the the band will hit us up and be like oh hey we you know are you interested and i'll hear it and i'll go that's really good Mm -hmm. um i'm sure we get a lot more that get (laughs) no that's not yes that's not for us but in saying that like if it doesn't really matter like from whether it be a shackles or a you know, like a sort of I exist or, a, you know, a few other things that we've got coming up. Mm-hmm. I know I'm pretty realistic with what it's going to sell. Yeah. And I don't expect everything to sell what a Parkway sells. And sure. I don't really, um, I obviously the, there's certain ways you can do things to give any release the best opportunity it can to succeed mm-hmm. um, and succeed might be selling 500 copies yeah and six like the, if a band's drawing you know a thousand people and you only sell 500 copies that's a problem yes <laughs> but if the band's sort of doing a hundred people consistently they're going to probably sell 500 or a thousand records yeah. so that's sort of where you sort of knowing that stuff and knowing not to spend a million dollars on marketing for a band that's going to sell 500 copies yeah you just need to know what the, you know, need to be realistic with the expectations of the record. Sure. Um, and that's where sort of, I guess, a lot of labels that, um, you know, they they either don't succeed or they don't sort of mm. do things. It's through that sort of way they sort of overspend and they yeah. get there. Or, or also too, like a, a major label that wants to get involved with this sort of stuff, they just don't, you know, like I'd like to think we're very um, knowledgeable on what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I would way. say, uh, and I would say as well that I think something that I I don't, and this is from what little involvement I do have with this sort of stuff. But like, I mean, something that I see is, I guess, like an arguable outsider in one aspect is that like, I think there's a different, there's a stark difference between 
a smallish label releasing a record that does really well to, and you know, like literally, you know, for instance, like obviously our first record isn't like amazing, but like the, when we release it, we just, it was done Mm. and we get, you know, we hit you up and you wanted to do it and then it came out. Yeah. Whereas now there's labels that put like just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into something and like that's where all of the effort is. The mm. effort is not in you running this awesome label and yeah. the band writing an awesome record. The effort is in, and you know it's happening a lot in this country with various different things. But like labels putting in just like bucket loads of cash into the marketing schemes yeah. and like you know the band could be a pile of shit until they put that money into them yeah but they whatever label guy sees this tiny little thing that he likes or whatever and then just floods it with it and i think that maybe a lot of concern now is more with like did our record chart and yeah. did it you know do we guess the marketing and there's that sort of campaigns and stuff yeah there's a lot of to... there's definitely a lot of that and it's definitely there's a lot of um i don't know if pressure's the the right word but there's a lot of um like again if you're dealing with a band that can sell a few thousand records you probably do want it to chart and i guess the fact that it does chart just gives you another reason to promote that it charted yeah um and then it sort of just goes it's i wouldn't say it's a game but it's nearly like a game that Mm. you you know you play that you sort of um there's a pressure to chart and there's a sort of um you know, and once you chart, you want a gold record, and once you get a gold record, you want it to keep. You know, whether you get a platinum record, but it's sort of um, and that sort of stuff. Like with us, there's a lot of things that you know, whether or not it be an I exist or a crisis alert or shackles or um, anything we're doing. There's a lot of that stuff just is irrelevant. Yeah, like a lot of it. You know, no disrespect to I exist, but you're probably never going to have a gold record. No. So it's sort of... And, and, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't think any of us would ever no, think that we would. Yeah. So it's sort of... Um, whereas you do get a, a few bands that they possibly think they might sell. Like to sell 5,000 records in the country is really hard. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just think everything sells that and it doesn't, yeah. like it just doesn't. And it's sort of... Um, I, again, like I sort of... I'm realistic with what we do. We don't really ever press too many records that you get sort of stuck with i definitely have a warehouse full of stock that's probably never going to sell but the it's sort of going into it that's just accumulated like considering we've done you know 135 or so releases you can't have a a nothing in your warehouse yeah it's never going to sell everything yes so you have to have um and you know considering that i sort of feel as though we've managed it pretty well but um I, I think we're more realistic with... I, I very rarely go into a release... I, very, I never do a release based on what it's going to sell. Yeah. I've never taken on a band thinking that, um, um, oh, this is going to go great. And a lot of it comes down or through... Um, I, I don't know if I've ever... I think Voice of Descent from Geelong was the only band that I've ever really worked off a band sending me a demo or sending me mm. um, like a finished product saying, hey, here's this, are you interested? And... The, uh, most of the stuff comes through, you know, like someone like yourself will be like, oh, hey, we played a show the other day with this band. Yeah. And then I'll be like, I'll go and check that out. And I'll be like, holy shit, that's really good. Yeah. And then you either make the call early on, is this worth getting involved with? Or you'll have, like, say, a band like Crisis Alert who 
footy would be like, oh, hey, we're doing some demos. Do you want to hear them? Yeah. And I'm like, sounds rad. Like, let's do it. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's not, it's never really a thing where I'm like looking for the next parkway because I don't really, like as much as I'd love to have another parkway, yeah. they, they they're not out there. No. And it's sort of, um, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Like we've, we've got a lot of releases coming up. All of them are more traditional hardcore sort of stuff. None of them are probably going to... Like, if we sell a 1,000 of them, that would be a great result. Sure. But, um, that yeah, the reality is I'll probably sell five to 600, 700. And, yeah. But we will sort of... I know what to spend to make that achievable or I know what marketing needs to be done. Like, the, I guess with social media nowadays too, you have a... Um, you know, there's a beauty of... Um, no cost to get your message out there. Yeah, yeah. And um, and the way you can utilize that again is a bit of a I wouldn't say a formula, but there's ways around how you can make that more beneficial. Payoff than yeah. it would have otherwise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I suppose, the, and the only way you can learn to do that is by doing it. Just experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like uh, to how we treat a release now. Like planning's the biggest thing for any label. It doesn't really matter how big or small your label is. You got to plan. To have one to have it out on release date is the big thing. Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise! That yeah. sort of is a massive thing. Um, but the just the, the planning and the way you know, like you're nearly working on a release twelve months before it's released. Yeah. Sure. Um, so it's sort of like having done it so many times and whatever. You just know, like you can go into autopilot mode as to how it sort of you know the time frames and the length of time it takes to get manufactured, and that there's no surprises and. You know, I'd like to think that we haven't. I can't recall missing a release date, although I've had to drive I Exist Records to you Canberra did. to make the <laughs> record launch. But that's I don't recall ever missing a release date based off bad organisation. Yeah. So it's sort of. I don't think that was anything to do with that anyway, was it? No, it's probably. I was probably looking for a trip to get to Canberra, but <laughs> the um, come see the boys exactly. But it's sort of it's planning's the biggest thing with anything. It doesn't matter how you. Um, you know how you're gonna how much money you're gonna spend or how much your expectations of how it's gonna sell yeah. if you don't have a really good plan you sort of it'll just shoot yourself in the foot yeah pretty, pretty much. much and yeah. just fizzer out as opposed to have a bit of an impact so yeah um and do you see the current climate of things in Australia working well in terms of like you know the the future of hardcore and punk and stuff oh, in I think so like I, I think there's well, there's, I guess the more, like nowadays, there's more and more people involved, whether it be promoters and whether it be touring companies and whether it be managers that probably don't need to, don't, be, there. Probably don't need to be there. <laughs> but um, that's an obstacle of sorts, I guess. Like it's gone of the days where it was just, you know, like a handful of people involved with yeah. the process of everything. Yeah. Um, and that, not that that's a problem, but the communication needs to be... Like we'll get bands come through here that are playing in Sydney. I've never, ever, ever heard of them. Yeah. And needless to say, there's no posters or no flies in the shop or no promotion. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, I'm sure the show probably Doesn't got go 30 people. Well. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they're probably scratching their head as to why that happened. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I sort of... I, I think it definitely... Like between... Like whilst Parkway and Emity and North Lane and In Hearts Wake and those type of bands aren't necessarily tied to your punk and hardcore scene, they've all come from the hardcore and punk yeah. scene and they've all they're exposing other bands. They're always touring with other you know, like it's not as though they're coming out and touring 
with bands that have got nothing to do with that sort of sure. thing. So they're giving younger bands opportunity um, and giving other bands exposure. And I guess the way, you know, like, and through that, that will continually hopefully roll another band into what those bands become. And yeah. the other thing too is that it doesn't, that stuff doesn't happen just immediately. Yeah. Like North Lane, whilst been, they're probably... They've been around they've been, Yeah, exactly. They've been around a long time yeah. for to get the rewards that they're getting now. And it's the same with Amity. Amity were a band that had been around a long time before they sort of started selling yeah. out shows and things like that. And, yeah. and that sort of, um, that's just how it is. A lot of people sort of feel as though they start a band and unless they're on Soundwave in 12 months of being on a band, that's a failure. And it's sort of like, yeah. well, not really. Like, you you know to do a fair bit of hard yards yeah. before you get onto that. I mean, I think a lot of people as well currently get caught in the trap where they think that, like, like a label like Unified or, say, like, they would see that, like, oh, so Northland are just massive. Like, they just decided one day that... You become massive. They were, that was how it was. Like, they were yeah. sitting at home with the guitars. Oh, hey, label, can you help us do a record? And then the next day they were touring overseas yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it was that easy. Yeah. Whereas, like, I mean... I know for sure that because I can remember it very well that like we I exist played a show with Northland in a fucking basketball court in like Blacktown yeah when I exist had a demo yeah and yeah. like I mean I can I don't like the music but I can see that like they've clearly been busting their asses yeah, for yeah. quite a while yeah. to do it it's not just like yeah you don't you don't wake up one day and all of a sudden want to be selling out a venue no. or sort of thing like I think that, I so. think that's that's kind of a, a, a thing of the times though as well whereas I mean I know that when we started or at least when I started playing this style of music or whatever you want to call it in, within this genre realm the whole thing for me was like oh cool we get to play in Sydney yeah oh cool now we played at the art house yeah oh cool we played with Mind Snare like it was like those were things that were important yeah never was it like I want to get an aria. Yes. <laughs> like, no. And I think that's yeah. that's sort of... Um, you're realistic with what you're probably doing, whereas a lot of bands, I feel as though... If they're getting into it to try to get... Um, you know, to gain popularity, it's probably not the best yeah. form of music to do. No, <laughs> so, <not at> all. <laughs> so that's sort of... Um, but I don't know. I sort of feel as though... Like, I think the more that it becomes popular... It does get harder to, um, to whether or not to keep a lid on it, but it's sort of like there's a lot of people involved, and a lot of a lot of people have um, like more often than not, I get a lot of emails of how do we get signed to resist, and it's yeah. sort of like, well, that's not really up to you because <laughs> no offense, it's you know I've got to like your band yeah and it doesn't matter what you offer like unless you're offering me a really good record unless you're a really good bunch of dudes I'm not that interested yeah and it's sort of and we're lucky that nowadays like more often than not the bands will come to us and they will be through me either knowing I'm having some connection like very rarely do you get a band that has zero connection with what you do yeah and ends up being a you know a band that you're like whoa that was really good yeah. Well, I mean, I've definitely been asked in the past in like, not in interviews, but people have definitely asked me like, oh, how did you get signed to resist? Mm. It's like, oh, well, I just emailed Graham mm. and I think really we'd pledge some shows that yeah. you put on and 
her old bands had, and you knew Alex. Yeah. And, and that's how, like, it, it, it all comes like, from that. And I remember even with Parkway, like, Parkway were, before Parkway, they were in a few other bands. Mm. And, um, and the, one of the main, I guess, ideas of doing the Parkway record was one, they, well, they asked us and they were nice guys. So I was sort of like, yeah, sure, I'll do it regardless of how it is or going to sell. Yeah. And it was also too to build up the Byron area. Like the Byron area was coming along really well. Yeah. And um, I sort of feel as though if the Byron, and same with like with I Exist in Canberra, like if you don't have a band that can actually put something out and have that sort of like, um, not so much exposure, but to have that sort of like, it, it helps the local scene if the local yeah. bands are putting records out. Sure. And that was sort of, that a lot of the stuff that I um, end up sort of, of agreeing to, a lot of it can come down to, well, there's nothing going on in that area. Let's sort of try to yeah. make something happen. And that sort of, um, you know, again, it doesn't always mean it's going to sell, but it sort of helps. Yeah, it's a good thing to contribute yeah. to it. Um so what's where where do you see like what is your goals that you have for you know the multifaceted business that oh. you now operate like what what's what's you know obviously you've had a a good run at things yeah. up, up until this point where do you see things going for you with uh, stuff I from think here? we'll just keep doing it like unfortunately we've got a lot of tours coming up again which isn't sort of something that we set out to book it's more a thing we just don't say no to Things that you want to do. That, yeah, 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 and it's sort of um, trying to manage. That's a bit tough at the time because yeah. um, you don't really like if a tour is going to work and a band's got this window to come out to Australia, you don't want to say no to them just because something else is going on or just because you're busy with other things or you've got to sort of nearly make it work. And mm-hmm. it's sort of if it means working longer hours or it means. Um, you know, sort of making other things happen to make, you know, that's how you just got to make it work. And there's no real goals. Like we don't sort of um, set goals as to this is how this should function or this is how this should, you know, be. It's just a more a thing of working with what you get and you just keep trying to get through it the best you can. (laughs) Cool. All right. That's probably pretty cool. I don't know. Is there anything you would like to... Spruik or advertise that you've got coming up? No, lots of um, lots of gigs, <laughs> lots of lots of touring. Keep an eye on the website. There's always like everything we do, sort of base is always up there, is always updated, and it's um, there is a lot of releases coming up, and a lot of um, I think we've got like six to seven releases between now and the end of the year that none have already been announced. Yeah, right. Um, and lots of touring coming up, which is sort of um, the touring side of things is definitely getting busier mm-hmm. and um and that's sort of it's a lot of it doesn't matter what if a tour is a big tour or a small tour it still takes the same amount of time to yeah. make it work, work it, yeah. so it's yeah. um and often the smaller tours are harder to make work because they take a bit more time to you know they don't sell as well They're as a bit the, finicky yes yes things, so yeah. but no we sort of we keep on keeping on and it's um it's yeah like i don't know there's no real plans to slow down or get faster or whatever it's more you, you know if people keep putting out records we keep stocking them in the shop if people want to keep touring we keep touring them and yeah if there's local bands to keep putting out records we keep putting them out Look yeah all right well thank you very much before for you know it it's yeah 2020 and <laughs> we're still doing the same thing yeah well yeah thanks for talking to me yeah no problem thank you fuck yeah brutal thanks <laughs>